This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 141 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week, we discuss Barry Sonnenfeld's 1995 film, Get Shorty. So I had this weird feeling when we were reading the book. I felt like it was familiar in some ways, and I knew that I, or I thought that I'd seen Get, Get Shorty, the film. But come to find out, after watching this whole movie, I realized what I had seen is Be Cool, the sequel, I believe, uh, to okay. Get Shorty. So that's like yeah. where I was. Because I, I could have sworn I'd seen, I was like, I've seen the movie with John Travolta, Danny DeVito. Like, I've seen the whole thing, but just never, I guess, realized that, you know, Get Shorty was was the the first one. And I don't know. I think it's because I saw Be Cool when it when it came out. And I think that's also a, a Elmore Leonard novel. Adapted. Wow. Yeah. So it is fully so, uh, adapted from his material again. That's crazy. Yeah, we could potentially cover it at some point. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I saw this movie a long time ago. Um, I remember really liking it. I remember it thinking it was really funny. Basically held it in very high regards. For the most part, I don't think it quite lived up to my memory of it. I, I'd be curious to know what you think of it. It wasn't bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, it, I think some of the shine wore off a little. And I think some of it hasn't aged particularly well. Mm-hmm. What what was your general thoughts on it though? I mean, generally, I I enjoyed myself. I actually had a really fun time with it, and okay, you know, like uh, I I think what set me up for it was the book, and I think I knew what to expect mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, but really, like I, I was impressed with how, the things that they leaned into. Um, they really leaned into the performances of the actors. I felt like a lot of them had some very interesting, like you know, this is a it was a meta story already, but then you take it for and sure. you actually make it in Hollywood. And it becomes even more meta because then you have the, some of the actors that are being spoken about actually starring in the movie or at least cameoing. Like you said, there, you know, things, certain things I didn't think really held up all the way, but I, I was surprised at how much I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, this was Travolta sort of at the height of his, maybe not the height of it, but but he, he had a lot of his charisma and his like gravitas. And he was starting to make that transition into sort of an action star, I think, around this time. So well, he, you know, I think like Face Off would be was around he, here too, right? Yeah, I, I think after, but yeah, it would it would be like the next thing. Uh, this was after Pulp Fiction, so like that was like the resurgence mm-hmm. of John Travolta, the resurgence of his career after right. you know because early on he had been he had Greece been like known and, for Greece and doing dancing yeah. movies and stuff, right? Some yeah. of that kind of stuff, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the like resurgence of him in Pulp Fiction, and you know, I I feel like it's hard to 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 separate for some reason Tarantino in this movie. Like it keeps being a sort of common common through line for me because I I mentioned how the Elmore Leonard novel felt like a Tarantino story in our in our last episode, um, and then you know we we came to find out that it was because Jackie Brown, which I had seen, is an Elmore Leonard novel. So it kind mm-hmm. of the styles were getting merged a little bit. The sort of dialogue, the quippy dialogue yeah. that they're both known for. Yeah, Elmore Leonard's known for his ear for dialogue, and that's something that people talk about with Tarantino as well. He's got this like really engaging dialogue. Yeah. I think one of the major things in this in this movie here that stands tall for me and still was was great was I the the cast the cast mm, was amazing yeah. all the way through like I, I was surprised to see Gandal James Gandolfini um, yeah Gene me Hackman. too man I I almost fell off my couch when I saw that was James Gandolfini because I remember that character 
right. remember the bear. You know what I mean? And reading the book, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the bear in the movie. No fucking memory that that was James Gandolfini, though. Like, completely did not know that. It was wild. Right. And plus, he's got this, like, long kind of mullety hair going on in the movie. Does not look like himself, in my opinion. Well, at least how I'm used to him looking. Exactly, yeah. And, like, you know, he would go on to do The Sopranos, which eventually, you know, a career-defining role for him, which which yeah. made him, like, the go-to sort of mafioso mob yeah, boss how kind is of thing. he in this movie that, that is dealing with all these gangsters and he's not a gangster you know what i mean like right. he's the, he's the but i think i i mean i loved his that might be my favorite character just in terms of like relating to a character he's a great no, character he was good. he's he's a great actor you know and absolutely and, uh, i've liked him and everything i've seen him in i think and uh, i remember going back and watching true romance which is a movie that i think is kind of underrated um I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember really enjoying him in that because he is sort of the side character who all of a sudden takes like a pretty major role towards the end. And he's just terrifying in that. Again, somewhat connected to Tarantino. And I, I like right. that was, I think I'm looking at it now. True Romance was 1993, which was just before this. Get Shorty. Okay. So that was before this. Wow. Yeah. So he hadn't, still hadn't quite broken through to being like a main, you know, but he was putting together, together good work. When did, when did Sopranos start? I think it's like 1999. So it would take a few more years, but then he would have this, you know, iconic role. And yeah, I mean, he's a great, a great actor and, you know, RIP for sure. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of this cast was, was really good. You know, you had Gene Hackman in here. I mean, um, Gene Hackman, just to speak to his, his stuff really quickly, like this is somewhat, you know, it's against type. He would have other movies like his, um, you know, when he cl- would collaborate with Wes Anderson, he would have sort of his quirkier movies. Right. But this, this is... I don't know. This is one of my favorite Gene Hackman roles. Unusual for him, right? Very un- unusual. Very like he's like goofy and like off kilter and and weird. And he's got so much character to him, though. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I really he's like, like a, he's like a huge coward. Yeah. You know, in like a really funny way. He, he actually might be my favorite character in retrospect yeah. more i think about it like he, I, he's really I, good in this i mean i gotta give my props to danny devito as well national treasure yeah danny devito some protect him and and someone make sure that he's safe at all times because <laughs> i love that guy did you uh were you expecting danny devito to be to be martin weir when you were reading the book <laughs> i think yeah no i think so i um did you really yeah yeah because because of the movie because i had forgotten that that was who danny devito played like i said it'd been a long time since i've seen the movie right. and uh well i remember that he was shorty when i when was getting back into watching it, i was like oh shit danny devito plays that guy that's right. so funny and you know we we just saw him in one floor of the cuckoo's nest early in his career and we're seeing him in right, the 90s yeah. here it's funny the the you know crossovers we get his um, his performance I I have to give the, the performance props because in a meta way, again, is giving a performance. He's performing inside of a performance in this mm-hmm. movie. And the way that he does, like he's doing like a bad performance while performing for someone while That's filming true. it for a movie is it's it's really, really good. Like I, I was I was like, God damn, Danny DeVito has some solid range. And I was I just thought it was really funny. And he's great. You know, and you're touching on a lot of great stuff in this movie. And I, I agree. Um, I, I guess what didn't play as well for me now where i'm at in life was john travolta the badass um and he can be a badass don't get me wrong you know what i mean like i i'm not someone who's you know gonna sit here and say that john travolta can't be a badass in a movie he can but something about this his chili palmer performance i don't know he went to the well too often with the smoking and with the the look at me line and it kind of got a little silly to me after a while Mm -hmm. and well, when I was younger and I saw this, I was sold. I thought he was the coolest fucking dude. I remember mm-hmm. that. You know what I mean? That's one of the things I liked about the movie. But like this time, it just didn't quite play as well for me. 
You know, like I feel like there's something in the performance where it's meant to be funny as well. Like it's yeah. like he's supposed to be that. like the prototypical like try hard gangster or whatever he is here. Um, and when he's doing that, I think he does it well. Uh, I do think that he took a lot of what he maybe picked up in from Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction because there are similarities to the role. Like you know, yeah, Vincent in Vincent in Pulp Fiction is kind of a goofy. He doesn't have but, that hair though, man. Vincent's right. hair is what makes it <laughs> right. But the goofiness, like like the characters are like oddballs. Like they're weird, yeah. but they're also serious and they're hitmen and everything like that. So it's like it's there's something He's similar maybe- there. Yeah, I mean, other than his love of movies, he's pretty serious in this movie for the most part, right? Other than the fact that he's like this movie nerd. Right, right. He's not but as I much think... of an oddball as he is in Pulp Fiction, I guess. Yeah, that's true, for sure. But I think in, in like for, for us watching him, it's, I, I don't know, I didn't take him seriously all, at all times. I, I guess Vincent, to me, always felt more like a real person than Chili Palmer does. Chili Palmer, to yeah. me, doesn't really convince me this is a real human being. I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, which like maybe you're like maybe you're right though. That's not the point. Maybe the point is to be kind of over the top. Like I said, this movie uh, feels more solidly comedy. Did you pick? Did you pick up on that? Would you yeah. agree with that assessment? Yeah, I definitely felt that for sure. Yeah, and so maybe even, that's kind of still even, me trying to figure out how seriously to take it. You know? Right. I mean, even the the violent scenes and any of the, anything that happens, any scuffles, they're all funny. They're all meant. To, they're all made to be funny. Written yeah, to be yeah. funny. Oh well, yes. Everything with Ray Barboni for the mo- for the most part is right. played for huge laughs. Right. The like, nose. The like how he gets shot in the top of the head. Like the it's scar like part he gets of his there. Hair gets shaved off. Right. And, all and then that, you got yeah. like the way that ultimately the end of the movie. The movie ends with like sort of the stunt man having rigged the the situation with the with the railing. Yeah. Which I guess we're going full spoilers, right? We should. We yeah. Should, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, not we clear. Should, we should say full spoilers right here, but it's an older movie. Most people have probably seen it if they are curious about it. If not, go check it out and come back. Sorry, we spoiled a little bit of it for you. <laughs> I want to talk about one more thing real quick with the comedy and the violence okay. is when Chili throws Bear down the stairs. Yeah, uh, that's another moment of clearly like it is. He's a stunt man. He throws him down the stairs, and you know this all goes back to the text. This all goes back to Elmer Leonard. Um, but just the way that it's shot, the way that it, it feels very much like a comedy moment. Um, but it's also serious because like, you know, lives are at stake potentially people, people's feelings are getting hurt, you know, sort of gangster shenanigans are going on where, you know, when, when a gangster's pride is hurt, you, you don't know like what they're, what they're going to do. You don't know if they're going to lash out in a way and like come back at you, which typically Mm -hmm. is the case in movies like this with, with, uh, this mafia stuff. You you highlighted that it, it was straight out of the book, and I think that was something I I was surprised by. This is a really faithful adaptation. <laughs> like yeah. they he switches a couple things around here or there. It felt like certain plot lines kind of uh, maybe got more resolution to them than I remember in the book. Um, but for the most part, like this was another another situation where someone took the book and was like, "This is going to be the basically the screenplay for this thing, and we're yeah. going to make it." I, well, in my reading, I, re- I found out that originally they, they had sort of f- taken the dialogue and made it more, you know, what, what Hollywood would consider palatable for the time and, and lent, leaned into sort of making it, I guess, I guess just took the dialogue and made it more typical, which when Travolta came on board, he was completely against and was mm. like, we need to go back and put in all of the dialogue that Elmore Leonard uh, had written and I think rightfully so because I think if you buy this screenplay you buy this story and you're going to yeah. adapt it the That's main reason yeah the main reason is to get the dialogue in there and and then you know like you said when the dialogue is in there it's it's nice to see it just adapted right onto the page 
yeah. but did it, but did it always work for you? What do you, what did you think about that? For the most part, yes. I, I I guess I've started to change a little over time to where I start to crave a little bit more creative license to be taken at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get a little bit of it. I think and I think it ramps up more towards the end. So this was sort of a criticism that sort of disappeared by the end where we had some changes. But I remember early on thinking like, this is beat for beat. And it's probably only a problem that arises if you just read the book. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? It's like super fresh in your mind like we, like mm-hmm. we do. Um I don't know. It's weird, though, because sometimes it can work. Like we talked about with Silence of the Lambs was almost beat for beat, yet is, you know, fantastic. So I, it's tough to make any sort of blanket statement about, like, what the right thing to do is. I think it's very project dependent. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, I think it worked. I just, uh, in the situation of having just read the book, I would have liked to see uh, some of these scenes sort of, I don't know, reimagined in some way, and it, but but it would have to be in a good way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's you have to do it. Re- you have to do it well. Right. I think you know the idea to to keep all of the dialogue, do all you can to do that, and then yeah, maybe maybe switch up the scenes a little bit here and there. Yeah. Um, I I felt sort of what you felt as well. The the in, in the beginning, I was like, this is beat for beat, but sometimes, um, and in this case, it it didn't really bother me. Honestly, I was like, uh, I I feel like I knew going in that it was going to be fairly faithful. And I was mm-hmm. maybe surprised at how faithful it was. Uh, just in the fact that they they did go in with all the dialogue, I thought it might have been changed. But, you know, decisions were made where that wasn't the case. So while we're talking about performances, I want to shout out uh, Delroy Lindo, who I, I didn't actually know his name. I had to look it up, but I've seen him in a lot of stuff, you know, and I thought he was great in this movie. And he actually really brought something to this villain character, right? Like he... He, I don't know, he just had such personality. He was more likable, I think, than than the character in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, you still didn't want him to win. You know, he was still a villain, clearly. Um, but he really worked as that foil, right? Because you could, you could see that him and Chili Palmer are after the same things. But it's their methodology, I guess, that separates them. I, yeah, I mean, I, I felt that he was really... I felt like he was really intimidating, he yeah. like I felt like yes, he, he was carrying too, yeah. that villain role. I also love, like you said, he's he's also kind of like more likable too, and he brought some nice comedy. Yeah. The uh, stay off my carpet stuff had me every time. It was funny to me. It didn't get old. Uh, yeah. Like when they when they uh, brought him in and there was like they were beating him up and there was potentially going to really be blood. Expressive like, too. Like I feel like he had like a smile he'd give people and like he 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 was like charming in a way that. It was really, I don't know, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a good performance. I just wanted to shout him out where we're shouting out, you know, standouts. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, and we might as well, while we're at it, talk about Dennis Farina, the Bones, Ray Bones. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's such a Comedically funny, over the top. He, he's, he's got some comedic chops for sure. But he, but he does have the look of like a mafia, like I think he's in, yeah. I think he's in Goodfellas. I'm pretty sure he's in Goodfellas. Or, or is he really? Yeah, I can I think see he it. Is. And he can turn on the scary too, because I think there was his interaction with, uh, with, with Zim, with Zim, right? Like where he, where all of a sudden you realize that Zim is in over his head, and he's he's like kills the guy and plants the gun on him, and you're just like, okay, this guy is dangerous, you know. Which right. I think you have to sell a little bit before him to get bested by a Chili Palmer later to have any meaning to it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he has to be sort of the final boss. Let's also talk about Rene Russo. I, I was yeah. so happy to see her, and and I like the idea of, uh, you know, the scream queens and and someone wanting to be more than that, being brought that attention being brought, especially during this time period. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it, in the text as well is the same kind of thing. Like there really wasn't much there. I would have liked to have yeah. seen more. 
especially with Rene Russo. Well, she gets kidnapped in the, in this version, right. and she's present at the end. So maybe I'll, I'll give them credit a little bit more, a little bit more in the film. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I another criticism I have, and maybe it fits, maybe it fits with the style of the movie, but it felt to me like their relationship was a little ham-handed, like a little, a little. It was underdeveloped, and it was basically brought on by a music cue, which is like a. I don't know, kind of a trope I hate. But if you really want to give them a lot of credit, it's like they're being really meta, like it's a movie, so we're going to we're gonna set up a romance with a music cue. And I'm talking about when she comes out on that like little, uh, like Juliet balcony or whatever you call it, and he looks up at her and you hear like this little bit of like a saxophone plays or something, and you're like, right. oh, I guess he's into her now, and she's into him too, and then they are. You know? I, there is, <laughs> there is potentially some, potentially my favorite part of the movie uh, takes place between them. Uh, and it's it's the touch of evil reference that, that goes right. on. So which that was fun because you know we 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 went on another podcast, thirty three percent pulp, which I think might be defunct now, but you can still find those episodes um, or that episode. We went on and talked about this movie, and I was I was so surprised when I saw this. I was like, holy shit, I know this movie. Usually when it's it, an old black and white film, I don't know it. <laughs> right, and isn't it so fun to have the, everything click in? And you know, like people who are trying to make movies, what the movies that we look to typically i would say as as audience members the people the people we look to who are making movies were inspired by these these other movies so like yeah. seeing someone inspired by touch of evil totally makes sense and you know that's a that's a monumental orson welles film and and the you know the fact that film people who are super into film would make that make would make that reference where he's like orson you know he had the gun to his head so he did his best work when he was under the gun and all of that yeah. and like it was true we even i think i even brought that information to that podcast episode and said yeah. it and yeah, it, was cool. uh, it was just so much fun to see the character sort of like vo- saying the lines and being so into it and just loving it um mm-hmm. especially for something like orson wells and it's just filmmakers referencing filmmakers which i'm, I'm always a fan of i thought it was really cool yeah. and then to have the the one of the most famous film noir endings with uh dietrich walking off into yeah. with the song playing and then playing the song while chili and uh karen are walking down the street i thought it was amazing and like as she gets into the cab and he sort of does the adios thing it's so funny such a well-crafted scene yeah, I love you're it. right and i guess that does bring it around a little bit because that was that was kind of a cool bonding over movies moment he was like the most annoying person to have in a movie theater though while he was in there right. oh no i you wouldn't know, like, stand literally for quoting every line <laughs> like sitting behind you like somebody like that i, I would have to uh shush pretty uh, oh, for sure. vigorously yeah i can't i can't stand <laughs> people who talk in movies <laughs> and then I, I did love how he like tapped the guy in front of him he was like oh that's fucking good that i will say i've seen you know where everybody loved the movie at the end like on your way out you just start talking to random people and you're like how, how good was that just especially when you go alone <laughs> right yeah right <laughs> right like who else are you gonna talk to that's funny uh so before we get really into it though just because we're talking about their romance one of the things that i i continue to be sort of amused by is how quickly um karen forgives chili palmer for breaking into her house everyone <laughs> so, forget, you know, personally every, like even even um zim how he yeah. the, every, they're just okay with well, it, it's right? not his it's house so at least absurd, and he's a weird fucking dude but but karen so seems to be like she, and he does it again right. later and she's just like oh whatever 
Right. But like fucking people breaking into your house, like that's not okay. I don't know. Like I would be right. way more upset than any of the people. I are mean, in this movie. you know, there were times in Hollywood's history where like the open door policy, people just walking into people's houses and things like that. Yeah. But like you know, this is later than that. And, and he's making this weird argument. Chili makes this weird argument. He's like, "Oh, your your door was unlocked, so it wasn't really breaking in or It's like, uh, yes, it is, dude. <laughs> just because it's unlocked, it's not an invitation to come inside. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that that to me felt as dated and weird as him paying off a teenager to take a bag and go put it in a locker when he's in a fucking airport. <laughs> right. Here, take this bag. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no way that's happening today. $10. How innocent were we back then? It's the 90s. Maybe it was like, whatever. You know, no one, no one knew at least the crazy shit that was probably still happening. So if you're ready, we can move into some some background on the filmmaker and start to talk about some of the the you know deeper plot here in a little bit. Uh, Let's do it, man. I feel like I know next to nothing about Barry Sonnenfeld, other than I think I've probably seen another movie by him, but I I didn't look it up on purpose. So I want to learn about it on the on air. Yeah, I mean, you definitely have seen at least things that he had he was involved in. So okay. I know I know that you've seen some of this stuff. Here we go. Barry Sonnenfeld was born and raised in New York City. He graduated from NYU Film School in 1978. He started work as director of photography on the Oscar-nominated In Our Water, 1982. Then Joel and Ethan Cohen hired him for Blood Simple. Amazing movie, by the way. Haven't seen it. This film began his collaboration with the Cohen brothers, who used him for you their next... You love the Cohen brothers, though. Yeah, I do. Do you say we or... Yeah. I love the Cohen oh, yeah. brothers, but yeah. Uh, we sure do. <laughs> we sure do. Uh who used him for their next two pictures, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. Also amazing movies. Uh, he also worked with Danny DeVito. Seen Miller's on Crossing, but not Raising Arizona. That movie's, that movie's bonkers. You should definitely check that out. Uh, he also worked with Danny DeVito on his Throw Mama from the Train, 1987, and Rob Reiner on When Harry Met Sally in 1989, and Misery, 1990. And Misery, isn't, oh, wow. that, a, isn't that based on Stephen, Stephen King, King adaptation? Yeah. yeah, one of these days we're going to cover that one. That's high on the list. Now, this is all so far him as a director of photography, and then he okay, transitions so into a yet. director. Right. So Sonnenfeld got his f- first work as a director from Orion Pictures on The Addams Family, 1991, a box office success released in November 1991, followed by its sequel, Addams Family Values, in 1993. Seen both of those. Grew there up on go. those. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, for sure, and man. It's a that very part of my childhood. Like, the tone, the tone of those and some other ones I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, you can feel in this movie. He received critical acclaim for his fourth directorial effort, Get Shorty, 1995, produced by Jersey Films and based on a novel by Elmore Leonard. The film won a Golden Globe for Best Male Performance. In 1996, Steven, Steven Spielberg asked him to direct Men in Black. Starring Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith, the movie was a critical and financial smash. Producer John Peters then asked Son- Sonnenfeld to direct Wild Wild West, an adaptation of an old <laughs> TV series. He also directed the comedy Big Trouble in 2002, after which he made his most successful sequel, Men in Black 2. Well, yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen the Men in Black movies. Uh, I saw Wild Wild West. That's interesting. You know, it's kind of it's kind of a mixed bag, it sounds like, like some some real winners and some clunkers in there, too. You've got Elmore Leonard's source material in this movie, right? And I think the yeah. other other things you can see, there are some stronger scripts and some weaker scripts. You know, Wild Wild West, sure. I think everybody who's ever been involved with that admits that it's ridiculous. It, it was doomed to fail. It's like the one of the biggest flops because of the, the budget of the movie at the time and everything. Right. And it's just didn't Will Smith choose there. that over doing the Matrix, too? I like believe so. Yeah, I have yeah. heard that. 
So, I mean, that's that's Barry Sonnenfeld. I think you can kind of understand his style. Interesting, man. I mean, I didn't realize how, I mean, Men in Black movies, I mean, those are iconic for sure. I didn't know yeah. this is the same guy. Right. And, you know, like I say, I think there's a lot of Elmore Leonard in this film, but it's you can still sort of see the tone and his his like brand of humor. It's not quite like full, fully goofy, but it's right there. It's it's definitely oddball humor type stuff. Um, yeah. And then more recently, he's done Men in Black 3. And then he's directed episodes of a series of unfortunate events for Netflix. OK, which I, I haven't seen, but I saw the original film and I know it is based off of a, of a pretty beloved uh children's book series why yeah children something like that i, re- I read a, i read like the first three or four and i remember I, I had a lot of friends who were really into it growing up yeah yeah i think i was a little old when they came out to where right. i wasn't interested in it but i i also was the kind of kid who like pretty quickly was already like i don't read kid books anymore right. when I was young. <laughs> so the reason i didn't read harry potter which we've talked about on our uh, harry potter coverage right so and as i said before to to tie it all back to quentin tarantino MGM, I read that MGM executive's first choice to direct was Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino directed another film based on Elmer Leonard's novel called Jackie Brown, which we've talked yeah. about. Um, but yeah, of course, of course. How about asked, a Quentin, Quentin Tarantino version of this movie would have been fucking something else, huh? I, yeah, I mean, he I would have made some changes. It. I can tell you that yeah, much. <laughs> it's like, you know, early Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. And then, you know, he was going to do his Vega Brothers film. Uh, this would have fit right along with a lot of that stuff in there. There's sort of you have yeah. your like gangsters. Tone you feels know. off, though, for him. So he would have had to change it. You the tone. I mean? Yeah, like, I, I think he would definitely. Too, it's too comedic for him. Right. In some weird ways. He, he does comedy, but he's got that particular brand, dark, dark, like yeah. very uh, unexpected, I would say, for the most part. Yeah. The violence wouldn't have been as cartoony as it sometimes was in this. Definitely. That's for sure. There would have been more squibs, a lot more squibs going on. <laughs> a lot more squibs. That's for damn sure. <laughs> so if you're ready, I think we should we should start to move into talking about the movie as a whole. We can talk about specific mm-hmm. scenes, some changes from the book. Uh, we're not going to read a synopsis this time because... Our last episode is somewhat a synopsis of the same story. We'll talk about the changes, yeah. but it's so similar that we're not going to go scene by scene. Sounds good to me, man. Uh, so I have some random observations that I made here that I, I want to touch on. One of them that I thought was some of the humor landed better in the film than it did in the book. Um, one particular bit was that I found really funny was all the discussions surrounding the screenplays. Um, first off, how no one reads Mr. Lovejoy, <laughs> I find hilarious. Uh, well, especially Chili Palmer, but but a bunch of other people also don't read it. Um, Martin Weir, uh, I think he reads Mr. Lovejoy, but then like they're all talking about this movie that Chili Palmer is describing, which hasn't even been written down. It's all just conceptual. Um, I don't know. There, I thought like there was they're trying to say something about Hollywood. <laughs> I think here. And how all these people are like falling in love with this script, with these different scripts, yet they don't even know what they are. It's all based off of just like hype and right. ideas. And well, and I it has know. a lot to do with like I, I know I've heard before that actors will go through and just like what character am I being you know cast for? Or what am I reading yeah. for? And only read their lines and see if there's a lot of substance there. And if there is, yeah. then, you know, about. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what what they do in the movie. It just matters like is there enough here to 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 like you know sink your teeth into. And then uh, you kind of take that and you have this conversation between uh, Bo Catlett and Chili Palmer where they're talking about writing screenplays and the whole thing about commas, about how, oh, you just write all your ideas down and someone come in and put commas in and if there's get some tricky words in there, they'll figure out how they're spelled. And, and then he's like, you know, I think I've read some screenplays where the words weren't even spelled right. And it was really, I just thought it was so funny. Yeah. <laughs> 
I love it. It's like, like like that's all that matters is getting the commas in the right spots and you'll be fine, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everybody's met somebody who's like, I got a great idea for a movie. And it's like, yeah. maybe they do. And maybe they have a solid one that's all oh, flushed for sure. out. And those were lines from the book. That's Elmore right. Leonard, who clearly knows, you know, the value of writing, talking kind of how, about how people on the outside view writing, right? Like, this is clearly how it is. It's like, anyone can do it. Don't worry about it. You just got to get someone to come in and throw the commas in and you'll be fine. <laughs> right. Well, like I said before, the, the idea that you as a producer, the nightmare scenario where somebody breaks into your house just to pitch you a story because they know they have the next great American movie yeah. idea. So they want to pitch it to you and everything. Like, it must be an everyday occurrence for, for like any big time producer. I wanted to, we're talking about producers and everything. Gene Hackman apparently based his performance on a an agent he used to have who was like the wow. most phony person he ever knew. That was one thing that I, I wanted to get your take on for this because this movie is skewering Hollywood in a lot of ways, right? Like y- there's nobody here who's like making truly artistic things for the right reasons. Everyone's in it for the wrong reasons. Martin Weir is just like, over-the-top narcissist. I mean, anytime you walk... If you ever walk into somebody's house and you see a painting of themselves on the wall, just fucking run. Because that person (laughs) is out there. I mean, Donald Trump famously painting himself. I mean, mean, that should have been your first sign. Um, But yeah, I mean, Martin Weir has got this giant fucking portrait of himself. He's got all these statues in his house and he's just... He's so over-the-top and then he clearly only cares about himself and his own ego and... um, that was true in the character in the book, but it just felt like they turned it up a notch or two for the film, in my opinion. Um, and then you bring in Danny DeVito, and he, it, it becomes really, really funny, I think. It already was funny, but even even funnier. Um, but, but the whole point I was trying to get at is it felt like they were just really skewering Hollywood. And did you ever feel defensive watching this, or were you just like, fuck yeah, get him, dude? I mean, <laughs> I hold no allegiance to Hollywood itself. Like, I'm not like, okay. oh, I love Hollywood and the Hollywood system and everything. Like, I, it, for me, it's always been about the movies and the stories. Like, I'm not going to get defensive over something like that. Yeah. Um, okay. Like, I, you know, I think if it was attacking, like, storytelling, maybe I'd feel a little differently. But it's not. It's it's attacking a studio system that's pretty pretty unfair in the first place. So I'm sure they can handle, you know, taking a few taking a few hits here and there. It's, a, you know, these jokes are, you know, based in reality sometimes. So definitely definitely wasn't feeling defensive okay well that's good man um i i I guess i i wasn't either but i was wondering if you would feel that way because it was like uh i think also at the end i think is is to kind of spoil it a little bit we transition into the movie we are watching is the movie that uh they've been talking about making and Mm. it's it's signified when harvey Keitel shows up and this is you know it's really funny cameo amazing cameo um as as Ray Barboni, right? Yeah, in but in the book, it called for for Harvey Cartel. They're like, oh yeah, Harvey right, Cartel. yeah. And they even mentioned his name. Is so great. So, but that movie that they're making um, at the end, it's sort of a farce, right? Like it, it, it when he turns around, you have all you know the I think they're like stewardesses or something, or in these kind of skimpy outfits, and you see that the gun that uh, Danny DeVito's character Martin Weir is, is holding is like really like weirdly shaped and it looks like they're making it into like this really um i don't know exploitative version of this movie and i and i thought it was interesting because in the book uh at the end chili palmer sort of rejects that version of the movie by not having martin weir appear in his in his film right like he decides to go a different way with it 
And, uh, and I guess it's unclear on whether or not it's going to get made, but whether or not it's going to get made, it's not going to have Martin Weir in it. Here, Martin Weir is the star, and he's doing his thing. And it felt like they were kind of saying, like, this is Hollywood. This is how these movies are. And and I guess that was where I was wondering if it felt like was is that an indictment of Hollywood that you were willing to like kind of get behind? I guess most people in the movie industry will be the first people to say like it's all it's all fake. It's all at least people who can take themselves seriously, people who aren't like you know so narcissistic or up their own ass or whatever can say mm-hmm. like you know it's not it's not life or death. It's you know we're doing it for art reasons. We're doing it for this reason. Um, but at the end of the day, like it's it's all very fake. Um, everybody knows that it's all who, you know, everybody knows like, you know, these people, some of these people maybe don't even deserve to be in these parts, but they do. And then, you know, things, weird things happen sometimes when you put two people in a room with a camera, you can get some good chemistry, good performances. Um, and I think that's what it's all about. I I didn't really take it as, so with like sort of the stewardesses around everything like that, you're just saying like, it's so superficial, like just everything about it. No, I mean, it Uh, just looked like the, the kind of movie they were making was like, I don't know. They weren't going for like full on comedy. Maybe it just it it felt like there was no attempt at realism. Like the, right. He's holding this giant like futuristic looking gun that doesn't even resemble a real gun. Like it it just was a bizarre film to be made about this this situation. I guess maybe from like the writer's perspective that Elmore Leonard is, or I guess in this case the director, because this wasn't you know it this wasn't like it was from the book. Yeah, uh, I would maybe it's just this idea that like. What audiences are interested in is usually weird and crazy and not not expected. And um, so they, you know, they do things that they don't even necessarily think is is cool or right or whatever, just because they think audiences will respond well to it. Question mark. Yeah. Well, and and this is also a different era of of filmmaking. Um, And maybe that was kind of like the hot thing right then. I mean, we're in the middle of like over the top action 90s movies. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And maybe it just he just felt like that was the pinnacle of the whole thesis of the movie, which is that Hollywood is superficial. It's full of criminals and crooks who don't care about the art. And, you know, Chili Palmer is thriving in this situation. But that is still the situation. And like, you know, you see uh, you see the bear is like working on it. You see Zim is directing it like it's all of our players are there. Right. Right. It's all a small town. Everybody knows everybody. When push comes to shove, like, you know, the big players all know each other. But yeah, this idea that everybody's crooks and everything like that, I think I think most people know that, you know, there uh, for, for every person that's, you know, really into it for the art that wants to tell the story, that wants to reach people, reach audiences, there's probably three or four or five people who are just interested in the fame or the money or the status yeah. and all that kind of stuff as well. So like, I mean, it, the thesis of the story. Well, and that, that actually, that reminds me, I wanted to say that I think that's the key difference between Bo Catlett and Chili Palmer that we're led to believe, at least, is that the very minimum... Chili Palmer is a movie fan and he loves movies. And that's kind of why he wants to be in the movie business. Whereas it feels like Bo Catlett, maybe he's a fan of movies, but he's in it for the status, right? Like he's in it for looking, looking down at the pool. He's in it for wanting to be the man who has the, the respect of everybody in Hollywood. And so maybe they're trying to say like the motivations there, you know, Chili Palmer's are more, I don't know, authentic. Or what, like, we as movie-watching, movie-loving people would identify with or something like that. Like, like I would yeah. hope that, you know, even even though he does all this bad stuff, it's all it's all for the sake of the movies we love or whatever, you know? It's crazy. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, uh, did the stuff with the bear, did that work better, worse, or the same for you? Because I know you liked it in the book. 
um, the way he sort of manhandles this stunt man and, and throws him around and stuff. How did that so play? I, I mean, like I said, I, I liked the character that Bear played in the movie. I think James Gandolfini brought a lot to the role. And I think that, you know, instead of being this like really hard bodyguard that used to be a stuntman uh, that we get in, in the book, I think in this version, we he is sort of bumbling. And like the yeah. idea that he's a stuntman doesn't mean that he's a tough guy. And I think that was being said in Elmore Leonard's novel as well. But in this case, like he sort of has more of it's more of the comedic flair to it. So yeah. it plays maybe a little better. I mean, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was fine. I think it's it's also really funny to me, like to take John Travolta and put him in this role where he's super, oh, he's super tough and he's going to throw people downstairs and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, it's in a comedy. So it's also like, it's kind of funny that he's the yeah. only, he's trying to be so serious in a movie full of people who are bumbling around and scared of him and that kind of thing. Um, so it kind of makes the fact that he's so tough also a joke. Like it's kind of funny to me. Like I'm okay. like, look how over the top he is. Um, yeah. in, in, in the way that he's going about everything. It's just like, I don't know. I found myself just kind of like, ha, 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 ha. I would like, you know, give a, give a little chuckle here and there to things that aren't, weren't probably meant to be jokes fully. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I still have my same misgivings about it just because it just, he seems like that kind of guy wouldn't be so easily thrown around by Chili Palmer, but I was willing to suspend disbelief, I guess. Um, also he's said to be a, to, to be like a champion bodybuilder. But I mean, James Vandolfini is, is an intimidating guy, but champion bodybuilder. I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe at one point, but yeah, not, you know, at <laughs> he's this a point, big guy, I guess. Anymore. So yeah. there you go. I think the idea to have have the bear, you know, I think he had a daughter in, in the book as well. Yeah, but he did, the, yeah. the, the daughter really helped his character, especially in the movie, just like the representation of like how he was threatened by Bo Catlett to like yeah. continue working with him. And all well, that and that, they made a good because I don't think that scene where he like sort of holds the daughter and kind of has a veiled threat about that. Right. Um, when that, that scene happens the movie, in the movie, right? like it really signifies to me, at least like that's when the bear turns on him and is like, fuck this guy. I'm willing to kill him now. Right. You threaten my child. You're, you're done. Right. Yeah. So I, I have some uh, other just stuff that I read in my research, stuff okay. that I'd love to, to talk to you about. Oh, one yeah. of the one of the funniest things is when people in Hollywood first saw the billboard with Danny DeVito dressed up as Napoleon Bonaparte credited with Martin Weir's name, they thought it was a real one and Danny DeVito might have changed his name. The film crew had to explain to residents it was just a prop in DeVito's latest movie. <laughs> so they put up the real uh, thing in, in Hollywood and people just drove by and saw it. That's funny. Uh, I, you know, and of course he's playing Napoleon because he's he's short, I guess. I don't know. The whole get shorty and like all the jokes about his height, I, I still don't find particularly funny. And it's interesting that yeah. the whole movie's named after it and the whole book's named after it. But right. um, it's OK, I guess. It's very 90s humor, right? Like make fun mm -hmm. of somebody for being short. I don't know. I feel like we've well, kind of moved over, past that it, a little bit. Yeah, it's a holdover from the book, too. It's like I think if you yeah. change it, it fundamentally changes. Like you would have to change the name. And change some of the details about the story. Yeah. And it stayed so true to the book that they had to stick with it. And yeah, uh, you know, I don't think it was really that funny that he was short or anything. Like it didn't yeah. it didn't play very, very funny to me anymore. I, I don't think we really touched on this one in our book episode, but I did read that Chili Palmer was loosely based on someone named Hollywood Bookie Stan the Man. Stan huh. the Man. Uh, Atkins, a Detroit mob bookmaker who moved to Hollywood and became a producer. He was friends back in Detroit with novelist El Elmore Leonard. Wow. Okay. So based off a real guy he knew. Potentially based that. on a real guy. Something yeah. something that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, for uh, sure. The title, which we also didn't talk about this because I think it's very specific to the movie stuff. The title, Get Shorty, from both the film and the book, refers to Orson Welles' chauffeur, George Shorty, 
Chirello, or Chirello, that in part was recited by John Travolta's character from Wells' Touch of Evil. So apparently there's like a chauffeur or something like that that was like famously that's not what the known title Shorty. <laughs> he actually says, when they're joking about what are they going to call the movie, he says, get Shorty. Right, but I think that it was potentially it. it was a potential reference to an Orson Welles movie that it, like Elmer Leonard potentially was referencing Orson Welles because movie. in the book know. he says get Martin he doesn't say get Shorty he jokes that they could call it get Martin and then they change that to get Shorty in the movie I thought to put like lampshade the fact that like that's why this movie's named that they thought it was too subtle to not say it out loud um, gotcha. I never got the connection to the Orson Welles stuff. Um, maybe in a, in like a, in like a roundabout way it is, but it just seems like a short joke to me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't know. It's just something, something I read and some of the stuff could be incorrect, you know? Sounds like the kind of thing they're trying to do to like play it off. Like, oh no, it's referencing an Orson Welles character. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you remember (laughs) the famous shorty character? Yeah. Come on. Our references are just too above you. (laughs) <laughs> well, well. speaking of references, this one I know for sure is real. Uh, as a nod to his short but memorable role in The Godfather, Alex Rocco, uh, the guy who plays Ray Bone's boss, the guy who's laying down getting massage. Oh, yeah. He's only, he's only seen in this, in this film receiving a body massage in a similar manner, manner as the character he played, Mo Green, in his final scene in The Godfather before he was assassinated. Holy shit. I thought he looked glasses. familiar. Yeah, yeah, remember the glasses get shot and blood squirts out? Yeah. Another project yeah. we've covered on Ink to Film. How about that? It's been a while, but yeah. yeah. So like a full-on reference to The Godfather because, you know, it's got this this movie, the story clearly has its roots in, in you know, mobster, mafia. Yeah, gangster you know, fiction. Story. So so to to reference The Godfather is just like the the ultimate movie reference there. Mm-hmm. I should have kept my eye out for like oranges in one of the scenes or something. I, I should have been Yeah, honestly, at. yeah, there, there may have been like <laughs> uh, have some been. oranges in there. Okay, so I did want to like loop back around to, you know, I talked about John Travolta made sure that the script had the lines from Elmore and Ludwig's novel. I wanted to, he, he gave an example in an interview that I wanted to give you, which I, because I, oh, wow. I, you know, he gives specific, he gives specific wording, which I think is important. And like, I know you're going to agree with me, but I mean, it's the fact that they, they changed it from what it specifically was. Um, and then changed it back to Elmer Ludwig's words or it just, it totally made the movie probably. Okay. Uh, so here it is. John Travolta has said in interviews that he insisted the original Leonard dialogue be put back into the screenplay after it had been changed for the adaptation. In an interview, he gave an example. This is the line here. You see a black leather jacket, fingertip length, has lapels like a suit coat. You don't? You owe me $379. You get the coat back or you give me the $379. My wife paid for it at Alexander's. All of that is very specific, like quick you know, quick dialogue, yeah. very conversational. In the screenplay, Travolta says the speech had been changed to, where's my coat? You better find it. It costs $400. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Why? <laughs> and like coming from the actor who read the screenplay, that's scary. The dialogue could be at that point at any time in a screenplay's, you know, existence, like the, to yeah. where let's the take, actors are reading it. Specific, interesting, colorful dialogue and change it to bland, boring shit. Right. Sure. That's where's my idea. coat? You better find it. It's $400. <laughs> Come on. So bad. It sounds so bad. So, yeah, I mean, again, if Tra- if Travolta, you know, is telling the truth here with the lines and everything like that and and that he got them put back in, that's a huge, you know, when he came to the project, he brought a lot of weight to it, clearly, and, and like, really changed the course of what would happen in this movie. Interesting. They did change 
Travolta from being the one wearing the Lakers shirt at the end to having it be Karen wearing it. And I felt like the symbolic shift was instead the minivan. I think they, they moved it to be the minivan that he drives throughout. Like that's him symbolically changing his lifestyle and no longer being the true gangster. Um, what did you think of, of that sort of like metaphorical shift and, and reshuffling? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the sh- like the shift was less subtle in, in the movie because he out and out says it, right? Like, he, And I think he does say something similar, but basically he's asked by Bones, like, you know, why are you here? Like, wh- what are you doing here and all that? And he, he says, like, I like it here. I'm going to stay here. And even though he's just saying that to the saying that to Ray in order to kind of get him to like leave him alone or whatever it to me it also signified like he he really does feel that way and then like you say eventually I think I think to have it at the end of the book makes it more clear to the audience that like oh he shifted he's Mm -hmm. fully embraced it but I think there was enough there for the audience to pick up on like oh he does like this area he's gonna stay here but yeah I think you could see the character arc more clearly if the last thing you see has some sort of representation of his new life yeah, I just thought it was. I thought it was. It was notable that they they shifted it right for whatever reason. Right. Um. And it, it sort of became the minivan, right? Because at the very end of the the final shot, he gets in the minivan to drive away. Right. And like, but like the scene overall also signifies like his new lifestyle as well. But yeah, yeah. jumping in the minivan, it's just so funny. The the Cadillac of of minivans or whatever, and like it just plays a part. And Danny, yeah, and how Martin Weir is all about it. Martin Weir wants to drive it around and everything. It's just like, what? This is like a, such a weird thing to key in on. But yeah, yeah it, it's definitely a representation of like his past life and his, and his new life because it's like he's embraced, you know, what this what this new world is like for him. Oh, and shout out to our uh, our favorite lawyer from Jurassic Park, uh, Martin Ferrero, if that's how you say that. Uh, I looked him up. Uh, shows him he's in the beginning of this movie. He's sort of Chili Palmer's friend who's who's with him at the barbershop and stuff. But um, this would have been right around the time of, of Jurassic Park. I think maybe a little bit after uh, this guy. I mean, I feel like I haven't seen him in many other films, but uh, this is right around that time. So he looks just like he does in, in Jurassic right. Park, really. It, like you said, I think Jurassic Park is 93 and this is like 95. So yeah, it's so, right after. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and like, I totally noticed that as well. Cause that's my, that's my frame of reference for him when I see him. I'm like, yeah, to- like Jurassic Park, he gets eaten by the T-Rex when he's sitting in the, in like the, <laughs> you know, the porta potty thing. And, yeah. and uh, when you gotta go, you gotta go. <laughs> yeah. Another film project back in the right. day. <laughs> everything links itself together eventually. This is it's like It's wild, yeah. It's like Kevin Bacon, you know. That's why everything's connected to Kevin Bacon as well. Everything eventually will be connected to Ink to Film. <laughs> yeah, it probably already is, honestly, but but within a few degrees. Also, like another just random scene that stood out to me. Uh they're driving and and uh Chili Palmer says to Harry Zim, "Look at me." <laughs> and I was like, "Not the best idea to do when someone is literally driving." <laughs> like harry looks over at him and i'm like it'd be funny if he crashed into something right there right yeah the look at me thing uh it worked i think travolta was able to do it how i kind of imagined um i thought it was funny i don't know if this happens in the book in the same way does does uh zim use the the look at me line no see i think that was something that was it was somewhat present in the book but i think they played it up the way that zim 
and Martin and uh, like everybody started like quoting Chili Palmer because he was just so cool and like he had this right. way. Well, you Ray, know? like like when when Ray first comes to Hollywood, like it, it's kind of done differently. I feel like right, like when he first yeah. shows up, he confronts him in a different way and like tries to like mean mug. No, him. no, it is he done differently because yeah, that that whole confrontation is that that's something they added, which I actually thought was right. a scene that really worked. Right, because him then we get him the killing the Harry Zem. Like that doesn't happen. I don't think in the book. Right, and I, yeah, I did think that worked really well. Uh, and you get a funny, funny and and good performance from both uh, Gene Hackman and Dennis Farina. So if you're ready, I mean, I think we have to sort of come down on on which is better here in a second. Do you have any other last minute things you wanted to you talk about with the scenes or anything? I just thought it was funny how half the time he says "look at me" to somebody, they're already looking at him. Right, and then they're like, they're like, I am looking at you, and he's like, I want you to keep looking at me, or I want you to no, look at my face, or something. I, I forget how he mm-hmm. like qualifies it. Well, but like when he's when he when he's talking to uh, Weir, and he's like, look at me. He's like, I am looking. At you. He's like, no, look at me, like I'm looking at you. And oh like, yeah, you know, because he's trying to get him to do the. God, and then the, the looks that Dane look. DeVito delivers are really good. <laughs> it's that that scene is great too. The scene with the uh, you know Touch of Evil, Orson Welles movie theater, all of that, and then the performance that Danny DeVito gives at uh at his house and then also when they when they meet for lunch or whatever where he's mm-hmm. like uh you know zim is all like in his cast and everything like that and then uh weir shows up and he's just ordering everybody a bunch of stuff they don't want and then he leaves before <laughs> it even gets there yeah yeah so over the top but but classic and yeah good stuff but you're right man we got it we got to decide what was better book or film for this one uh do you want to lead off or do you want me to go first um I know where I land, so I think you maybe you go first because I've gone first a lot recently. Okay. All right. I actually found this to be really, really difficult. Um, mm-hmm. This was one of the harder ones I've had to do lately. Um, and it's because it's not because both are without fault. I think both have problems. Um, for me, at least, I think uh, both have tons of merit, though. I mean, both both really shine in a lot of ways. Um, but it may be a curveball for you. I'm going to go with the book here. Um, oh, yeah. I got I got to give it to Elmore Leonard. I, I was sort of expecting to like the movie more just because the meta nature of a movie about making a movie and how it's kind of like recursive mm-hmm. and, and all of that. And that was there and that was fun. But, um, I think I was enamored with the style of Elmore Leonard and seeing him, be a master of dialogue to where I can't like, I can't overlook that. Like I really mm-hmm. liked that part of the book. Um, so for me, I'm going to go Elmore Leonard, but it is like a hair. It's, it's right there. For right. Me. Yeah. It's very hard for me as well. Um, I kind of waffled. I went back and forth a little bit. I was like, well, okay, so which, which, which way do I want to go? I ultimately decided to go movie, but just barely if there was going to be a time that i was going to go book i i almost nearly went book it i think the only thing that puts it over the the book for me is for one the stuff that i loved in the novel they kept elmore leonard's dialogue stays pretty much untouched and is in this movie and then you get some performances from some actors that i love and and Mm -hmm. i think it was a really strong cast like i said i think that's that's the biggest thing that i liked from this movie is the cast and the performances and seeing people play against type, seeing James Gandolfini in sort of a funny yet still menacing role. Yeah. Gene Hackman as like, he's the ultimate sort of like tough guy, badass in certain mm-hmm. c- certain movies. And then you're seeing him as like this meek, like sort of goofy and funny 
uh, screenplay or uh, producer. So I, I just I really really enjoyed the performances. And but like you say, it was by a hair. I I almost even right now I almost I almost went book. I almost said yeah. book. Yeah, that's funny, man. I I think uh, for me, I almost you almost convinced me to go movie with this conversation because I I had written down you know I'm going book this time in my notes, but. I, I thought about changing it on the fly because I feel like talking over the movie with you has really sort of, I guess I maybe I'm not as like into all these different actors and like the stuff they usually do and how against type they were and all that stuff. And I, I appreciate that more, I think now after talking with you. So uh, it's tough, man, but I like the idea of this being sort of a split decision for us, you know, as much yeah. as that may be like lame to people. I don't know. We're not going to force right. ourselves to, to choose to like come together. We're, we're just going to say split right. decision for us um, right down the middle. We don't have a guest to, to break the tie. <laughs> In the same way as you were answering, I found myself thinking about on the fly trying to change my answer to book, but <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'm going to stick with movie. Like, stick I, with I guns, felt the man. same pull. I, I felt the same pull, though, because Elmore Leonard did. This is Elmore Leonard's story. Yeah, that's the thing, too. Like, the, you wrote this whole damn thing for the most part. I think I think Sonnefeld has less to do with the success of the story than, than Elmore Leonard is, which mm. is why it's so tough for me, because like I said, the performances and the cast are there and like seeing it on screen and the, the you know, the referential having that Harvey Keitel cameo is worth the price of admission. That <laughs> yeah, was, was amazing. Funny. Yeah. Uh, so it. funny because he's literally called out by name in the book. So it's just, it's really fun and, and interesting to see sort of Hollywood snake eat its own tail and everything like that. Yeah. I think they get way more into that with be cool. If I remember correctly, like it really gets into that, that, that Hollywood stuff, but it's been a while right. since I've seen that one too. I, it must not. Have, I mean, it must have been more recent, but I feel like I don't remember much about that movie. So I'd be curious to watch right. it again. If you're a fan of this and uh, you would like to hear us talk about, be cool. Let us know. We're probably going to cover it right away, but we can put it on the list, you know, and, and it could be something we can get to at some point, um, you know, because this was a lot of fun. I, you know, I enjoyed it. Oh, and shout out to Jamie D the patron who commissioned this project uh, over on our Patreon. She is at the Jukebox Hero level where you can get tokens to unlock projects and basically force us to cover them. Um, shout out to her. Been a longtime supporter. Uh, hopefully she enjoyed this coverage. And uh, yeah, if you're curious about our Patreon, uh, we also have bonus episodes released monthly on there. Go to patreon.com slash inktofilm to find out more. And yeah, thank you again to Jamie D. Please make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. And be sure to join the Council of Inklings because we post polls for upcoming projects. We post news about any adaptations we see coming up. Anything that we see that's interesting that's sort of in the, the adaptation or books or movies realm, the, you know, that field, I would say we post in there. So make sure to, to stay connected and, you know, continue the conversation online. Yeah, we want to hear from you, like, what what was better, the book or the movie? I'm always curious to get data points, you know, because you'll see people, like, vastly different opinions. Oh, this was way better. This was way better. It's always fun to see. Um, and this time, where there's a little bit of fodder for each side, I guess, in this podcast. <laughs> if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Helps get the word out, helps boost us in the ratings, and, and get more people to discover us. Okay, so I think it's time to sort of wrap it up here, but we do want to announce our next project, and I'm really excited for it. It is If Beale Street Could Talk, uh, the book and the movie, written by James Baldwin and directed by Barry Jenkins. Um, If you've seen Moonlight, I'm sure everyone knows who Barry Jenkins is right now, Uh, a great voice in in cinema, and I'm excited to, because this is a a movie I actually missed when it came out, and I heard great things about it. we both talked about uh, Watchmen, and we watched the the uh, HBO series. 
Regina King was in that, and she was, I think, nominated. Maybe even, I think she may have won Best Supporting Actress uh, for this role in this movie. Wow. So it's one that I've wanted to see for a while. Yeah. It's one I honestly don't know much about. Um, the name sounds vaguely familiar, uh, but I'm excited because it's recent. And, you know, honestly, it felt like time to get into a project like this for our podcast. So we'll talk about that more next episode. Hopefully you'll join us. And until next time. Thanks for listening.